When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. People's response is pretty much the same. They hit the street out of the cinema and they want to do stuff. They're inspired. They're galvanized. They want to get things done. They want to stop procrastinating. You know, it's, it's, it is a sad, it's a tragic thing, story, basically, I suppose. But, it's, uh, but people leave the cinema with, with hope. Uh, it, it's that thing that tragedy can sometimes do. It becomes uplifting. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Awardist, where we are chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year and breaking down the state of the 2023 Oscar race. I'm Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall, and joining me this week uh, with some some very important uh, predictions and to break down uh, some of what's been happening over the last week or so, we have Entertainment Weekly Editor-in-Chief Patrick Gomez. Hello to you. And Entertainment Weekly Awards correspondent Dave Carter. Hello to you as well. How are you guys? Good, good. Doing great. Glad to be here, always. Wonderful. Well, happy to have you here. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, lots of important stuff to get to. I first want to tell everyone who is on today's episode. We have living star Bill Nye. I'm always going to pronounce it that way now that Jennifer Coolidge did it that way. Uh, but Bill Nye, wonderful actor and a lovely human being, uh, and he's fantastic and living. And from the film, good luck to you, Leo Grand star Emma Thompson, who is just a gosh darn delight herself uh, and uh, who is who is such a fun interview uh, and just a an all around um, entertaining human being, I will say. Um, uh, always a fun one. So, guys, before we get to Oscar predictions, the Oscar nominations are coming out this week. Uh, if you're listening to us on Monday, they are tomorrow, bright and early in the morning. Uh, but let's talk about the Critics' Choice Awards, which were uh, last week. Uh, and those took place while Academy voters were still voting for Oscar nominations. So to break it down a bit, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once won Best Picture, and the Daniels won Best Director. Now, at the Globes, Banshees of Sharon and Fablemans and director Steven Spielberg won Top Honors. So let's start right there. Uh, did you guys see that coming? Did, did you feel like, uh, did you have some kind of inclination that the critics were going to go a different way? I thought it was a possibility. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually a voting member of the critics choice. So I should say full disclosure there. Um, and I did get the sense that my cohorts in that group were going to possibly go everything everywhere all at once. It's, it's a pretty young hip or like to think of themselves as hip group. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had an inkling that maybe they, they would do that. Did I expect the almost sweep? everything, everywhere, all at once sweep that almost happened. I mean, by the end of the night, I was looking around my table. I was sitting at the Banshees of Inner Sharon table and watching loss after loss after loss. At the end, I turned to the people at my table and I said, is Michelle Yeoh about to be Kate Blanchett for Best Actress? Because, I mean, I love Michelle Yeoh, but come on. I mean, how can you watch Tar and not think that Kate Blanchett deserves every award? So at, at one point, I thought it was going to be a total sweep. But let me just say, I'm so glad that it's actually a competition and a race and that different movies mm -hmm. are winning different awards because then it doesn't mean that it's sewn up. 
I have to agree. And I, first of all, I, I will share that disclosure that I am also a member of, of the association, so voted as well, um, and was in there in the room. I was actually at the table with the cast of Apple's Bad Sisters, um, which if you haven't watched it, it's a great, uh, very dark comedy uh, series. Then um, they were nominated there as well. And it was uh, a really fun evening because of all the surprises. Like you saw a lot of like, just so everyone knows, the way that the seating works uh, at, at the Critics' Choice Awards is, is normally there is the nominees at the table and then every table has one or two members of the association um at it as well so you know i was sitting with this with bad sisters cast and every other award they were like oh my god that's such a surprise and so that made it a really fun show and Mm. i think the speeches were really fun Mm -hmm. um and you know to your point dave i think that there was there was a feeling that everything was just going to sweep all the categories and it was nice to see i i agree i i will fully disclose like kate i think deserves to win everything i love michelle go and and without kate in the running i would think it's michelle's to win and i would be totally happy if michelle wins uh on oscars night as well but um i just i think kate's kate's incredible i think you know we could talk about whether her speech helped her or hurt her um but we'll get to that uh, in a second we uh (laughs) Um, but it was it was really interesting to see those switches, especially you know there's a saying at least at least uh, among a, a, a faction of of journalists, entertainment journalists who say the globes are globes gonna globes, um, which is you know short for saying golden globes because they are a smaller voting body sometimes make some very surprising decisions. Um, and so it's really interesting to even have this discussion now about comparing globes to Critics Choice um, because there wasn't a lot of overlap but i'm also not entirely surprised because again uh their their voting body is is a lot smaller uh than than critics choice so a lot of times it's not it's a good it's a good indicator of who's going to be nominated for future awards but less yeah. so like who might win yeah well uh to to the point what you guys have, have brought up uh just to refresh everyone Kate Blanchett uh did beat Michelle Yeoh Brendan Fraser beat both Golden Globe winners Colin Farrell and Austin Butler, and then Angela Bassett and Kiwi Kwan uh, repeated their wins from the Globes. Okay, so uh, Patrick, you, you teased it there, but let's let's get into this. Kate Blanchett, uh, part of her speech, she said, uh, and I quote, "Let's stop the televised horse race of it all." First, I want to know uh, what was the sense in the room when that was stated, because I. I I think from watching it at home, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but she was speaking very specifically about um, this notion of hitting women against women. And of course, the the Oscar, you know, the award season is not just w- uh, awards where women are competing against women. It's it's uh, everywhere. Uh, you know, every gender is competing. So why is that the sense that you guys got that she felt like this was a thing that was like pitting women against each other in a negative way? I think she was trying to be generous and magnanimous and say, isn't it silly that one of us is up here when there's four other great performances in this category? I will say, as someone who loves televised award shows, (laughs) really enjoys them and finds them exciting and thinks that they help the industry and help guide people towards watching certain movies, I was like, no, Kate, no, don't, don't say something like that. I think it just kind of came out. I don't think it's ruined her campaign. I don't think it means she's not going to win if she was already going to or not. I do think it's kind of a toss-up between her and Michelle Yeoh, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't love that she said it, but I think her heart was in the right place. 
I agree. There was a few people in the audience who like hooped and hollered and was like, yeah. And there was a few others who were like looking side eyed, like, well, that's exactly where we're all seated. And that's what you chose to attend tonight. So, you know, I think there was, but, but that was, that was a small group on both sides. And I think generally the speech was kind of just overall, I, I use this not disparagingly. It was, it was, mediocrely or neutrally received um, in the room. I think that there was other speeches that were, that got the room going a lot more. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I, obviously we're focusing on the film categories, but like Cheryl Lee Ralph's speech, um, yep. obviously Jennifer Coolidge is always going to give mm-hmm. a fantastic speech. Yep. Um, uh, Key's speech. There was, there was other yep. moments that Angela. stood out afterwards yep. when you were at the after party. Yeah. Angela, mm-hmm. like other moments for sure. Kate's comments while in the moment got some reaction from some members of the audience afterwards, wasn't really something people were spending a lot of time talking about. Got it. Okay. So, right. So that said, she is at an award show. I I was going to bring up what you said, Patrick, that so then why go? If you feel this is silly, why go? You go because you feel like you have to do the right thing for focus features which is the company that put the movie out and has really treated her very well. Mm-hmm. And if she had not gone, it would have caused a huge stink uh, amongst the executives of that company who were at that table with her and were expecting her to be there. And that's part of her paycheck is to do a campaign when she's able to. She didn't go to the Golden Globes, but she was around for the LA Film Critics and the Critics' Choice. And you go. That's what you do. Um, Kate Blanchett is good at doing what she needs to do and not anything more. She's not doing as many Q&As as some other people, as Danielle Deadweiler, let's say, um, or Viola Davis. Viola Davis was doing a ton. Kate Blanchett did like the minimum of what she needed to do. She shows up where she needs to show up and not where she doesn't. And I'll add to that saying, you know, it's interesting uh, for those that maybe aren't in the industry listening to this, that that goes both ways too. You know, it's often a part of a contract when when a star is taking on a project um, that they are saying, "I'm gonna, you are gonna commit as a as a studio to putting X amount of dollars towards an awards campaign because you know I want that rec- or I I think that this deserves that recognition. I want the guarantee you're gonna back that campaign. So it it goes both ways, and I think everyone understands that awards and awards attention is is advertising for not just the film in hopes that it does even better either in the box office or in in home viewing but also for the stars and talent involved both in front of and behind the screen you know the fact that Kate Kate's there had Kate never become an awards darling she wouldn't necessarily have the career she has right now and so you know it's 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 a self-feeding beast constantly mm-hmm. all right so before we uh, move on to oscar nominations last question for you what uh what is the big takeaway for each of you from the critics choice uh do you think uh let's say for instance uh that angela bassett and kihui kwan are now locks not just for nominations but presumably the front runners definitely the front runners and i really have a hard time seeing how anybody beats kihui kwan at this point i i mean i I have egg on my face basically in general with supporting actress because I didn't see Angela Bassett coming. Um, I thought Wakanda Forever was very well done. And I thought every cast member did a fine job. But by no means did I walk out of that movie thinking I've just watched an Academy Award winning performance by Angela Bassett. 
Angela Bassett is fabulous. She's one of the best actresses working today. She should have an Oscar already. She doesn't, and she's probably going to win one. Um, I just don't look at that and see an Oscar winning performance. I'm sure I'm opening myself up to, you know, getting a, a lot of hatred, but that's just how I feel. I'll be thrilled if she wins because she's incredible and deserves an Oscar, but I'm still not totally convinced that she's a lock and maybe I'm being stubborn. I still think that there could be a Jamie Lee Curtis victory at the Oscars. I don't disagree there. Although I will say Judy Dench uh, did win for playing a queen herself for less screen time. So there we go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny, Dave, very early in the season on the podcast, uh, once, once Black Panther had been screened, we were like, what is she going to have to do to get a nomination? And, and here we are. It's, it, uh, it almost certainly seems like it's going to happen. Um, but, but that aside, any other major takeaways from Critics' Choice for you guys? Yeah, real quick, I would just say the big takeaway is that there's like some real races, some three-way races in two of the biggest categories, Best Picture, which I would say is a three-way race between Fableman's Everything Everywhere and Top Gun Maverick, which I do think is still going to have a big uh, surge in the coming weeks. And then I think Best Actor is a total three-way race right now and very, very hard to predict. And I will I will say I it, this I was actually I I loved Banshees um and, and was glad to see it get as much attention as it did at the Globes um and I think that that kind of led me to think maybe it was going to be more of a contender in some of the categories that Dave just mentioned um and I you know I think it's it, the. the the unevenness in which it's being uh, rewarded um, makes me feel like it's less of a contender in some of the categories that I thought it had a chance in. I still think they'll have a good night. Um, it's, I wish I wish actually um, it was in the supporting categories more than in actor where I think it has the best shot. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm glad the show is... I'm, I'm glad the movie's getting the attention it's getting, but it, it is a bit surprising to me that it, it wasn't more of a constant stream and it's been a little sporadic. Yeah. Um, I will say the, uh, the, the story that I hope to see after Oscars morning is a, um, like a justice for Jenny, the donkey um, <laughs> from Banshees, because that, that, that animal deserves all the awards left. Anyway, speaking of, let's get to Oscar predictions. Uh, we're going to cover, uh, the major categories here. And you can see, uh, if you were listening to us, you can see the rest of Dave's predictions at EW.com. But let's start with supporting actor. Dave's picks are Brendan Gleeson, Ki Hui Kwan, Barry Keoghan, Paul Dano, and Eddie Redmayne. Uh, who potentially stands to lose out here? I think Judd Hirsch is the number six. I really do think that this race has come down to these six performances. Um, whereas other acting races have more people I think could get the nomination. Um, Judd Hirsch is terrific, but he's in the movie such a short period of time that I think he could fall victim to that. And Eddie Redmayne, who really has basically a co-lead role with Jessica Chastain in The Good Nurse, could get in there. Um, but I could see it honestly happening either way. If there's a lot of Fableman's love, I think Judd Hirsch could get that spot away from Eddie. But the other four, Paul Dano, Barry Keoghan, Kihui Kwan, and Brendan Gleeson, I think are pretty much sure things. Yeah, Eddie Redmayne is the Catherine Seta-Jones of this year. Uh, you know, basically, basically a co-lead, um, but, uh, relegated to, to supporting, which has worked. It worked, it worked for Catherine. So, uh, who knows? Maybe we'll get a, well, maybe we'll get a surprise here on, on, uh, surprise win on Oscars night. Uh, I, I really do think, I, I agree that those, um, that those are any other names than those six would be a pretty big shock at this point. 
Um, and I think the fact that there are you know, if it ends up being two Banshees, two Fablemans, and Key, I think that's even more of a guarantee that we'll see Key up on that stage at the at the end of the night. And and uh, of course, also his fantastic speeches that he's given every single time that he's won um, are are helpful here. You know, as as much as we like to watch them just as viewers, the voters are watching those as well and sitting there. And and you know, nowadays. They're they're either filling out their ballot, may, maybe by hand, but oftentimes on a computer or or on their phones, and and they're sitting there watching the telecast, saying like, "Oh man, I just I love him," and you know they click the name and they move on, and that's that's helpful. You know those those speeches are not just uh, to thank their the teams and families that support them, uh, you know, always, but also they're advertising, you know, mm-hmm. for future opportunities to get up there and give another speech. All right, let's talk supporting actress. We've already mentioned a couple of these names today, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Angela Bassett. Dave also has in his top five, Carrie Condon from The Banshees of Inisherin, Janelle Monae, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, and Stephanie Hsu, uh, also Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, The big thing here is that the ladies of women talking are the ones who end up really kind of getting shut out. Uh, Who else would be a, a, a big... Uh, a big miss, a big oversight, in your opinion, Dave? Well, I think Hong Chao is also in the conversation, as it were. She got a SAG nomination. I am reminding myself, if I'm not wrong, that she also got a SAG nomination a couple of years ago for downsizing and didn't get an Oscar nomination. So this wouldn't be the first time that would happen to her if it does happen. Although I do think she could get in there over someone like Janelle Monet. I, I still have Janelle Monae in my five, even though she didn't get a Globe nomination or SAG, just because I feel like she's so showy in uh, Glass Onion that she still could get in there and she's kind of campaigned right. And But I could be completely wrong on that. Um, but I think Jamie Lee Curtis, Angela Bassett, Carrie Condon, those three are in. Stephanie Hsu really seems to be peaking kind of at the right moment right now. And, and a lot of people, I think, are really appreciating her performance on second viewing of of that film. But you're right. The women talking ladies, I thought when I saw that movie that Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley could both get nominated. But then I think, you know, people like Janelle Monae and Angela Bassett kind of came in later in the season and and stole the thunder. I, I would. It's interesting. One thing you just said, Dave, which is um, on second viewing that Steph, Stephanie's performance is much more appreciated. I would say that that's the case for almost every performance in Everything Everywhere All at Once. That movie is so out there and different that um, when it was starting to get, I mean, Michelle, you know, she's in almost every shot. Like that one made sense to me, and she's fantastic, and she's also Michelle Yeoh. As everyone else started to get uh, attention here, Jamie, Stephanie, uh, Key. I was like, hmm, like, I don't really, you know, they all were functional in it. And then I I watched it a second time and I was like, wow, they're doing a lot here that like gets kind of lost in the spectacle. And when you can actually pay attention to the performances, like there's fantastic, fantastic work here. I think one thing that I'll mention, um, you know, a title that I think we thought was going to have more than just Kate. Uh, nominated from it is, is Tar and and Nina Haas uh, in the supporting role there. I think was somebody that we had on a bubble for a, a long while that is slowly you know moved moved further and further a, a, away. Um, I think you know uh, the Kate's nomination there is going to be is going to be the acting representation ultimately. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. 
All right, let's talk Best Actor. Dave, your top five. Colin Farrell for Banshees, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, Austin Butler for Elvis. Those are the three you were saying, uh, that three-way race. But then we add into the mix Bill Nye for Living. And you're going with Tom Cruise, Top Gun Maverick. That means folks like Paul Meskel, uh, Adam Sandler, Jerry, Jeremy Pope, Hugh Jackman, uh, Daniel Craig are missing out. Are there any of those in your six to ten who you wish were in the top five, but you just couldn't do it? I would be happy with the, with that five. I mm, I, okay. I will say I'm a, I'm a bigger fan of the Sun than most people are. So I would I was more bullish on Hugh Jackman earlier in the season, but people that movie has just completely sunk like a stone. Um, People that I respect, like Kyle Buchanan from the New York Times, he has Paul Meskel as his fifth instead of Tom Cruise, and I respect that, and I think that could very well be correct. Um, but I just am wondering if there's going to be this kind of Top Gun surge that I made reference to earlier in this conversation that could help Tom Cruise. But Tom Cruise is a polarizing guy, so I'm not. That's why he's my number five. So it really could be either of those. I do, however, think it's down to those six. I don't think Adam Sandler has a shot despite the SAG nomination. And I don't think Hugh Jackman or Jeremy Pope or Daniel Craig have a shot despite the Globe nominations. I really do think it's come to that six and anything else would be a big shock. Yeah, I, I agree there. I, and, and speaking of Top Gun, I do think that Top Gun is either going to be is either going to be, like you said, like a best picture. He, he, they're either going to emerge as a front runner in maybe even more categories than we think or I, I think that it's going to ha- maybe have best picture and not Tom. So it'll be interesting to see how how it all plays out because you know the way that once we know results at SAG, will will kind of already the the the, the votes will be close to sealed uh, when it comes to, to Oscars at that point. So it, it's tough because we're kind of getting past all of the pre- the indicators, prediction indicators, and and now it's just kind of the f- a feeling. Um, so yeah. It could be Tom. It could be Paul. I'm going to give the edge to Paul here as well. Um, but I, I, I agree with the other four being being pretty much locks. I think the big surprise here is how much it is, to your point earlier, Dave, uh, a three a three actor race um, in a way that I think most people thought it would be down to one or two at this point. Yeah. And that makes it exciting. I don't remember. It's It's been a while since we've had some kind of unpredictability uh, in those regards. All right. Best actress, uh, of course, Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh. Uh, it would be insane if they did not get nominated. Uh, and then uh, your next three, Dave, Viola Davis, Danielle Deadweiler. And this is going to get interesting. Andrea Riseborough for To Leslie. Okay. So explain this essentially like celebrities backing this Oscar campaign and giving so much attention uh, to to the film and to Andrea over the last couple of weeks. Andrea Riseborough is a fabulous British actress who might be known for something like playing Emma Stone's girlfriend when Emma Stone was Billie Jean King in Battle of the Sexes. But she's been in a lot more than that. She was in Birdman. She's just terrific. She's in this movie called To Leslie, where even though she's British, she plays this woman from Texas to perfection. It's a tiny film with no advertising or marketing budget that premiered at South by Southwest, got released in October to not much fanfare. There's been no ads. But it in the last couple of weeks, there's been this grassroots social media, largely, and events campaign run by all of these A-listers from Kate Winslet and Amy Adams and Edward Norton and Sarah Paulson and Jane Fonda and all of these people who have been Instagramming and tweeting about this performance and saying, if you're a member of the Actors Branch of the Academy, you need to see this performance. 
And it just, it's unlike anything I've ever seen before. And is it going to pay off? It might or it might not. It's going to be a numbers game. Um, if you get roughly 200 number one votes from the actors branch, you basically automatically become a nominee. That's kind of how it works with the math. I could maybe see that happening just from what I've been seeing on social media. So in addition to the sure things, Kate Blanchett, Michelle Yeoh, and I would kind of add Viola Davis to that list. If there's three women fighting for the last three slots, if it is Michelle Williams and Danielle Deadweiler, and I don't think Olivia Coleman's really in it anymore. I don't think Margot Robbie's really in it. And I'm sorry, I don't think Ana de Armas is really in it anymore, either despite her SAG nomination and her Globe nomination. I think that was Netflix using their muscle to really kind of um, get woo all the SAG voters and, and do their job so well. So I think I could see more people putting Michelle Williams on their ballots, but I could see Andrea Riseborough getting more number one votes than Michelle Williams. And that could make the difference. And I'll tell you what, if this works out at the nominations, if Andrea Riseborough gets a nomination, this will be the blueprint, the template for how to do it if you don't have the budget to go for the SAG nomination, to go for the you know, critics' choice, to go for the Globes. If you don't have the money to throw that kind of campaign and woo the voters that way, this is how you do it. And I'm dying to see what happens. And it might completely fall short and we'll all be like, oh, don't we feel stupid? But I do think there's a shot that she could get in there. This is uh, that's why I love rank rank voting. Um, it's like an it's like an episode of Netflix's The Circle. Uh, you, you can end up with some surprising <laughs> yeah. people on top, um, based on based on where they fall in. <laughs> Never thought we would compare the Oscars to The Circle, <laughs> but I get that's what EW you mean. For it's one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> lowbrow meets highbrow. It's, as long yeah. as it's good TV, uh, and 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 that would make great TV to watch an Oscars telecast where this underdog. Um, she'd be the darling of the night. Yeah. Um, and deservedly so. Uh, yeah, to me, I think minus that potential surprise, the other surprise here is how much, you know, I, I think she's probably certain to get a nomination, but the fact that Michelle Williams didn't get a SAG nomination yeah. really surprised me. Um, I thought that she was just a sure thing. Um, I don't think, I don't think she, I, I think it's a Kate Michelle race for me um but i so i didn't think she was going to be winning that night but i thought she was guaranteed to just get nominations from all the major awards and so that mm. lack of a nomination there did make me feel like wow are we, is that the name we don't see and is is it viola danielle and michelle's the one on the on the bubble um so it'll this this is actually probably the most um volatile uh list <laughs> i would say in terms of like uh, what could happen there's i could see a situation in which three of these names could not end up here that we're talking about in to be in a five yeah uh and and at the uh at the critics choice awards during her speech Kate blanchett even uh, uh name checked andrea riceborough let's i want to throw out a really big hypothetical dave let's say andrea does get nominated do you think there's any kind of brewing momentum that she could actually come from behind and win the whole thing? Like, is her performance that good and there's that kind of support? I don't see that happening. I think the nomination would be the win. Her team is going to, if she gets nominated, they're going to go for the win. It's interesting because um, she has people behind her on her kind of management team who also work with Penelope Cruz. And if you remember, Penelope Cruz got something of a surprise Best Actress nomination last year for Parallel Mothers. 
And then remember at the tail end of the season, people were like, wait a second, could Penelope Cruz actually win? So, there, so and sometimes the surprise nominee can really catapult and, and become a, a strong shot at a win. I don't see that happening. I, Andrew Riseborough is phenomenal in To Leslie. And it, by the way, for anyone out there who wants to see something really fascinating, it's available to stream um, on Amazon. I don't think it's free. You have to kind of rent it. But it's really, really well done. And uh, Allison Janney is in it as well. It's a ter- Mark Marin is in it. It's a terrific movie and well worth seeing if you really want to be in the know. But I'm going to agree with Patrick that for the win, it's going to be Kate Blanchett versus Michelle Yeoh. Okay, let's move on to director. Uh, Dave, your top five, Steven Spielberg, The Daniels, Martin McDonough, Todd Field, and then uh, Joseph Kaczynski in there for number five, Top Gun Maverick. Um, I-, I wonder if a lot of people will be upset that James Cameron doesn't get nominated considering everything he did on Avatar, but uh, w- would you, let me word it this way, would you be upset if James Cameron got nominated? No. Okay. I mean, I think what he did with Avatar The Way of Water is phenomenal. I've heard some people say, oh, maybe they'll wait till the, you know, the end of that franchise to give him another nomination. Mm. I do think, I mean, I do have him as my number six, but I think he has a very strong shot, as does Baz Luhrmann, by the way. I, I do mm. think that he's not out of it. And because we know the um, director's branch can often throw a total wild card in there, it could be someone like Edward Berger, who directed All Quiet on the Western Front, or Ruben Ostland, who directed Triangle of Sadness. I mean, there could be a complete wild card in there. Mm. But I do think, um, back to what Patrick was saying, if Joseph Kaczynski gets in there for director, and and if Top Gun, let's say, gets a screenplay nomination, then you're going to see Top Gun really kind of rising to that top uh, echelon of overall contenders. Okay, I want to throw out one more potential wild card. What about S.S. Rajamouli for RRR? Could happen. For some (laughs) reason, I'm personally sensing more of momentum behind All Quiet on the Western Front and Triangle of Sadness Mm. than I am for RRR. I could be totally wrong, and you'll play this back after the nominations, and I'll look like a fool. But that's (laughs) that's just the sense I'm getting right now. Okay. It, it certainly seems like the the song from RRR has a lot of momentum for sure. I, I think that that's, you know, going back to speaking about how like key speeches are probably helping him. I think that that, you know, having seen the the men behind RRR at a lot of these shows and giving these these great speeches is is helping raise awareness uh, for that film. And I think people are checking it out uh, that maybe had missed it initially. Um, and And that's where I think you do run into a situation where if you do have a surprise Oscar win that people will probably seek it out, but is it too late at that point? Like if you're, if you, if you're getting that upswell, do you need it a little bit earlier than nominations day? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Okay. Here we go. The last one, the big one. Uh, There will be 10 nominees in this category. Dave has chosen a, uh, a top 12, got a couple on the cusp there, but uh, the top 10 would be, the Fablemans, Top Gun Maverick, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Banshees of Sharon, Avatar, The Way of Water, Tar, Elvis, Women Talking, All Quiet on the Western Front, Glass Onion, and Knives Out Mystery. And then maybe trying to make their way in Triangle of Sadness or Babylon. Um, I, this seems like a pretty solid list to me. I don't know what's missing. Um, all Quiet well, on the Western Front could end up also with uh, international film. Uh, a lot of momentum for that there as well. Um, I don't know how I feel about Glass Onion, though. I'm just going to say that, and then I'll let you guys talk. 
Well, there's there's two producers guild nominees that I don't have on there on my top twelve. So it's worth it's worth saying that the whale and Wakanda mm. Forever both got producers guild nominations. Does that mean yeah. they're in? No, it doesn't necessarily, mm. but it, it meant a lot more uh support for those two than I personally was anticipating. So there I would say Glass Onion Women Talking are definitely uh vulnerable. Uh okay. even though they're in my top ten right now. And All Quiet on the Western Front isn't a sure thing either, but it just seems to be doing very well in some of the precursor guild uh, lists. So yeah. a lot of people that I respect, like Joey Nolfi, our, our EW compatriot, he has Triangle of Sadness in his prediction list, and that could very well happen. Um, so it's, again, there's a lot of interesting things here. I think, you know, the, there's seven in there that are sure things, right? Fableman's Top Gun, Everything Everywhere, yeah. Banshees, Avatar, Tar, and Elvis. Those seven are in. And it's just what are going to be the three movies that fill out the top 10. And there's a good seven or eight movies vying for those three spots, which is kind of cool. And now I just realized that I would love to see a mashup of Avatar and Tar, just Avatar, her directing underwater or something. I don't know. Anyway, back to you, Patrick. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that, you know, there's there's obviously um, Woman King, which I loved that's, you know, getting Viola a lot of attention. Dave, do you think there's any shot? For Women King getting a getting a nomination, yeah, I, it was weird. Like there was a moment where it was doing really well at the very beginning of the season, where it got a National Board of Review top ten and an AFI top ten. But and then and Gina Prince Bythewood got a Best Director nomination at the Critics' Choice. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's enough. It's it's definitely in there. When I said there's eight movies vying for the three slots, I think that's one of them for sure. I just don't see it happening right now, which is too bad because it's great. I, I yeah, it's 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 in my top five of the year. Uh, well, it is going to be an exciting morning one way or the other. Uh, before we go to a quick break, uh, the, obviously, we only covered six categories there. Uh, any others that you are you guys are particularly excited about? Um, anxious to see if someone gets in. Yes, animated, because I'm dying for mm. Marcel the Shell with shoes on to get an Oscar nomination. Uh, that would just make yes. my morning. Here, you and here so many others. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll say the other one that, that I'm intrigued to see how it plays out is editing. Um, I think there's a lot of really strong contenders this year. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see, to see where that lands this year. Uh, well, all right. It's going to be a fun morning on Tuesday. Cannot wait. Uh, but for now, uh, don't go anywhere, folks. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have living star Bill Nye. The awardist is going to be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Awardist. All right, uh, as I mentioned, uh, right now we're going to hear from Living Star Bill Knight, uh, which uh, Dave did that interview. Uh, Dave, your take on Bill in this film? I love him. Mm -hmm. I love him. I love his performance. I want everyone I ever interview for the rest of my life to be British. I, I want to see. I want to see how I can accomplish that. Just they just have a way, right? Yeah. And you'll hear when you hear this interview that he's just so lovely and articulate and doesn't watch his own movies. 
Because oh. I was asking him if he thought this was his best performance of his career, because it's really been this career capping moment. And he said mm -hmm. he, he said he really couldn't answer because he doesn't watch it. And I said, you're like missing out on a really good movie <laughs> by not watching it. But he's just a delight and, and, a, and right now a sure thing for a Best Actor nomination. Uh, well, he's fantastic. Uh, if you haven't seen Living, watch that. If you've not seen him in About Time, oh, watch that. But be prepared. Have some uh, tissues ready for that one. Anyway, right now, Dave Carter with Bill Nye. Enjoy. What a pleasure it is for me to be here today with Bill Nye, the star of the lovely drama Living. Hello, Bill. It's great to see you. Good to be here. You know, this is a film that has played so many of the top film festivals, Sundance, London, Telluride, Toronto. It's finally just come out in the UK and it's about to come out in the US. What has it been like for you this entire year to be doing promotion for it, but it hasn't actually been available to the public? And how does it feel now? Well, it's been uh, it's been fabulous. You know, we've been invited to all of, as you say, all those festivals. We started out in Sundance. Unfortunately, it was virtual. I'd even bought a coat for the cold weather, but I didn't get to wear it. And we went to Venice. It's been uh, it's been very, 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 very well received, and that's obviously always a marvelous thing. Um, it was slightly odd that no one, had, apart from people at festivals, had seen the movie yet. But now it's opened in the UK, and it's uh, I get. You know you're in a hit when you get phone calls from people that you were at school with or that you haven't heard from for 25 years. And uh, my phone has been on fire, you know, so and people in the street and all kinds of people. So it's uh, it's and for a film where, you know, nobody carries a gun and nobody takes their top off. That's not, a, you know, I did offer to take my top off, but they said, <laughs> please, can you, please, can you put it back on? So I, well, I did. well, maybe there's a sequel with lots of flashbacks um, and that, yeah, that can happen. Yeah. And I know from personal experience, you are a guy who walks the street. Many years ago, I'm talking 15 years ago, I walked right around the Wolseley in London. I walked right past you and got very excited. And you were So I can imagine people wanting to, uh, to stop you. Did you kind of fight for this role? Did they come and offer it to you? What was the dance? I went for dinner with the great British film producer, or rather film producers, Stephen Woolley and his wife, Elizabeth Carlson. And I knew that the other guest was Kazuo Ishiguro and his wife, Lorna. Um, and I, I went there. And at the end of dinner, Mr. and Mrs. Ishiguro said, we know what your next film should be. And I said, well, when you're ready, let me know. And about two weeks later, Stephen Woolley called me and, and suggested this was the suggestion, was to reimagine Ikuru by Kurosawa, uh, which had turns out was a long harbored uh, desire of Ishiguro. He'd always wanted to do that. And he and when and when he met me, he kind of he, that kind of pulled it together. So it was uh, I must have been very very good in a previous life or something. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. You mentioned Kazu Ishiguro, who did the screenplay, and of course, it's based on a Kurosawa film, which in turn was inspired by a Tolstoy work. And then you right. have this South African director Oliver Hermanis, but it's a British set film. So all of these different sensibilities, if you were, uh, kind of creep in. What, what do you view as the sensibility of this film? Is it British? Is it South African? Is it a Russian? Is it Japanese? Or is it a bit of everything? I think it's a bit of everything. Both Stephen and uh, Mr. Ishiguro wanted, uh, didn't want an English director. Not, no disrespect to English directors, but because it was such a 
an English subject, or not an English subject, but an, an English context. Uh, it's a universal subject. Um, they wanted someone with a bit of distance on it. And, uh, and, they, and we got very, very lucky with Oliver Hermanus, who'd never made a film outside of South Africa before. We all saw his previous film, Moffi, M-O-F-F-I-E, which was a magnificent film. And he has delivered something completely brilliant. Uh, and not least because he does have uh, a, a, a foreign eye uh, to some degree. He's familiar with London and England, but he brought to it, a, as you suggest, a different sensibility. And I think it's, it's a, hopefully the themes are universal and, uh, and so is the movie. Okay, now hold up. Have you seen this movie? No, I haven't seen the movie. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that question, really. but uh, I was hoping to slip that one by. You were playing uh, it off like you had seen it. No, I can't. I, I, you know, maybe when I'm very, very old, but I doubt it. Uh, uh, I don't think I can't take it. It's uh, it's a practical consideration. I, it's it, it. Trust me. You have to trust me. If at the moment everything is fine, people love the movie, and I'm fine. If I see the movie, all of that goes out the window. Wow, you're missing out, Bill. It's really well, good. It's really, really well, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that. All that's right, fine. fine. So that, that's as good as seeing it? All right, I'm not going to buy that. But all right. And now what's fascinating is that you and all of your fellow actors, you're all in the same zone. This, the tone is singular in this film. I'd be curious to know from your recollection how you all work together to really capture and be on the same page. A lot of it is in the writing, everyone calling each other by the surnames and all of that. But it really was more than that. How did you all work together to make sure you were doing the same thing as it were? Well, I think a lot of the credit for that has to go to Oliver because he calibrated all of that and he, was the, he had the overall view and he was the unifying factor in that regard. Um, and you're right, the writing, it's great writing. You know, I mean... It, Kazuo Ishiguro, who's a Nobel Prize winning novelist, didn't want to write the screenplay. He said, I don't write screenplays, I write novels. And Stephen Woolley cleverly said, well, why don't you write one? And if it's lousy, we'll go get someone else. So, you know, he kind of tricked him into doing it. But it's a brilliant piece of writing. And the writing does persuade you into a certain kind of performance. It really does. If, it, if it's of a, of a, of a, of a certain quality, uh, it just instinctively you kind of... Um, you, you drift into behavior and, uh, and a style of presentation. The movie takes place in a year where I think you in your real life were like three years old, so it's not a time that you remember, but it really transports you as a viewer to the early 50s. What was it like for you to experience that on the set with all of the crafts and kind of be transported into 70 years ago? Well, we had a we had a, 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 a team of assassins in terms of Helen Scott, the designer, and Sandy Powell, the costume designer, and Jamie Ramsey, the cinematographer. You know, uh, but for me, I was, as you say, I was born into that. Uh, you know, I would have been one of those kids playing in the playground in those dreadful shorts, and I uh, and I was born into that atmosphere of the post-war Britain, which was a very People dismiss the fifties to some degree over the years because it was over overshadowed by the sixties and all, and and you know as Keith Richards said you know we went from black and white to color mm -hmm. uh, pretty much when Elvis Presley uh, sang Hound Dog um, but uh, you know so but the fifties was a significant period and it was uh, and, and as Ishiguro says it was magnificent the way that the British people rebuilt 
the the country because it had been brutalized, particularly London, uh, savagely by uh, by through the war, and uh, and also they didn't just rebuild society; they re- rebuilt it better. They the National Health Service educating the sons and daughters of the working class. I was I came of age into a into a, a, a wave of feminism. Uh, homosexuality was made legal in my country, which is bizarrely late. It's like civilization only just got started, really, in this last century. Mm. But anyway, I remember characters not unlike Mr. Williams and that kind of absurd and bonkers formality that people required of themselves at the time, Mm. which is, I know, probably deeply unhealthy. The psychiatric establishment would certainly say, but there's also something heroic about it. And there's something funny. Mm. Do you consider yourself a bit of a throwback? Do you, are you the kind of person who says, oh, I was born too late? Or, or do you consider yourself, you know, more of a, a, a gentleman of the time today? I think I'm, uh, I'm, I hope I'm kind of of the time today. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it gets, I can't keep up. And I don't really, I don't really uh, try to keep up. But I, I mean, I, I have, yeah, no, I think I'm pretty much a, a person of my time. I don't think, I don't wish to have been born any other time. Um, I could have avoided the 60s, which were a confusing time and weren't, weren't as uh, <laughs> glorious as uh, the media would have had you subsequently believe. Yeah. The character that you play, Mr. Williams, is such a fascinating guy. One of his new friends and co-workers has a nickname for him, which is Mr. Zombie. And that, that kind of hurt his feelings and, and all of us in the audience a little bit. But he is a man who, especially at the beginning of the film, is somewhat sleepwalking through life. What was your way into him? What, what connection did you feel to him? Because that's certainly not how you live. No, but I do. I'm not, you know, like any human being, it's not peculiar to me, but I'm not I'm not. I'm no stranger to a sense of isolation or um, a sense of sometimes not wanting to fully engage with the world. But he, I feel, has been institutionalized uh, in grief at, because he lost his wife at a very early stage of their marriage, and his personality, his personal style, his whole response to the world has formed around that that loss. And he, he there is there must be a degree of anger as well as a, a, a great uh, sadness which makes him reluctant to fully engage with the with the world and therefore you know the way he the way he holds the way he carries himself the way he speaks is uh, is a sort of he, it's a, it's it's informed by a great reticence really to even carry on and he's also been involved in a job uh, you know he's been to the same place every day for the last 30 years and and in a job in an institution which is designed to prevent things from happening mm. so uh, that that's got to be grueling. So I suppose I, you know, I just did the usual things of studying the script and learning the lines backwards so that I could give the impression of spontaneity and uh, tried to kind of imagine how somebody like that might 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 proceed. It is a very fascinating peek behind the curtain of how things get lost in bureaucracy uh, because you do work for the the government and just. People are trying to get forms processed. <laughs> we see how they just stop moving. That was an interesting yeah. kind of look behind the scenes for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. anyone who's ever tried to get any sense out of an insurance company, I think it's part of their training. You know, he's not at his desk currently. I'm afraid he's away on annual leave. Um, we might have to check the numbers on that. Uh, we'll get, you know, the, it's the end of the financial year. We might have to reappraise re- re- the situation. You know, all of those things, uh, or even just not getting through 
you know, they, it's almost like they're designed to, to, to persuade you to give up, mm. uh, which I think they kind of, even whether consciously or not, they are. You're, they, they want to kind of just get you to pull the plug and say, oh, okay, forget it. You know? <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you know, I'm interested because I procrastinate at an Olympic level. I can put off anything you've got for as long as you want. When I die, there will be a long list of things I just didn't quite get round to. You know what I mean? I'm not, and, I'm, and I'm interested how that, that individual tendency, that personal tendency, not just of mine, but of everyone, which is the great corrosive element in our societies, uh, how that's expressed in a society, you know, and governments are formed. You know, they, a, lot, a large part of their work is making sure that stuff doesn't happen. Mm. We're all at it, you know. And it is, I think, from a uh, dare I risk the word spiritual point of view, that is exhausting. Mm. One of the loveliest things about you and your performance in this film is experiencing and hearing you sing as Mr. Williams. And it's this lovely Scottish folk song, if I'm remembering right. Did you, yes. uh, were you excited about that prospect? Were you nervous and worried about it? Did you know the tune? What was the whole process there? I was nervous about it. Uh, I'm not that confident at singing. I mean, I can hold a tune, as they say. You know, I sing around the house as long as my daughter's not there. Uh, and, um, you know, I sing in the bath like everybody else. But I, I'm not publicly singing. It's not my favorite thing. Uh, it's, there's always something on the schedule. You look down the schedule, you think, oh, God, you know that. Uh, I probably can't do that. Uh, but it, but actually, it worked very well because, you know, I've been required to sing in movies, but I've never been required to be any good. You know what I mean? I'm not supposed to be a singer. I'm supposed to be some guy in a bar singing a song, a, a, a drunk guy in a bar singing a song. And also, it's in terms of telling the story, it's when he starts to fall apart and allows the grief that he's been uh, withholding for all these years to come out and, and his fear of of dying, obviously, you know. So, uh, and, and there is something about singing that does unlock, well, certainly for me, my emotions. It's like when you're at a funeral and you're fine until they ask you to sing. And as soon as they ask you to sing, you, you, you fall apart because there's something about the, the act of opening your throat and singing uh, and, and, and that just, uh, that is unsurvivable in terms of, you know, and you start to, tears start to form and you, and you start to grieve physically so uh, that that was that that helped because i was able because that was part of my responsibility in that scene mm. i'd love to talk a little bit more about amy lou wood amy lou wood and uh, alex sharp because they're they're so terrific the whole cast is terrific those two are the two that i feel like you share the most screen time with um how do you think they the, their characters inspire mr williams and how did they as actors inspire you well they were exemplary i mean they're absolutely brilliant performers and they were everyone was totally committed to this because of the script the script was of such uh great quality and inspiration that people were there was no ambiguity everybody knew why they were there and amy lou was you know sensational to do business with as was alex and tom burke who's a great friend of mine who also came in that was a coup to have him come and play that part um, and everyone was kind of, uh, as I say, galvanized and brought together by, the, by an enthusiasm for telling that story uh, beyond the usual strategic careerist view, uh, point of view. So, uh, you know, that I, I was blessed with a great, great, great cast and crew. 
You know, you mentioned you haven't actually seen the the film. I don't know. You must be aware of this. But when we watch the movie, you and a lot of the characters are shot in such a way where there's quite a bit of headroom uh, between you and the, the top of the screen. And it creates this really interesting effect that I quite frankly can't put my finger on what it made me feel, but it's definitely a kind of visually arresting look. Were you aware of that? Um, were those conversations or, or no? No, but I've been, no, I wasn't aware of anything of that kind. I, I, I arranged not to be aware of any of it when I'm working. I, got, I, don't, I don't need to know and I, don't, and I prefer not to know. Uh, I don't even know if I, wanna, I don't even want to know how close they are. Uh, you know, um, mind you, these days, whenever they bring the camera close, physically closer, I do say, gentlemen, is this necessary? <laughs> uh, you know, those days are gone. But, um, uh, but no, but I'm interested to hear it because I know that uh, Oliver started, you know, is, is a photographer as well as Jamie Ramsey, the cinematographer. And he, and I love, and when I take photographs on my iPhone, I'm not a photographer, but when, but I do, I do fancy myself as someone who can, who can crop uh, successfully, you know, who can compose an image uh, like everybody else who's got an iPhone. But uh, I do like, I love that thing of having space above the, 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 the subject or to the side of the subject put everything on the left-hand side of the screen. I love those, those shots, and I love that, 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 that kind of composition. Oh, that's great. Uh, I did take note of so many interesting turns of phrase. Um, at one point, you as Mr. Williams say something like, I have rather gone to ground. And it's these very interesting, I assume, very British turns of phrase that I wasn't familiar with. I wonder if those were also of a specific time or if they kind of permeate contemporary British culture as well. I have rather is a construction that you probably won't hear very often on the street right now. Uh, although it's still around, you know, it depends on which school you went to or what, what books you read. But gone to ground is a pretty common enough. It's a, I believe, I think it's a hunting reference. Oh. Uh, it means the, the fox has gone to ground or something, you know. I think that's right. Not that I've ever done any hunting, just for the record here, ladies right. and gentlemen. Um, I'm not about to start anytime soon. Uh, and I don't move in those circles. But, um, uh, yeah, so I, mean, I think Ishiguro is fascinated by those kind of speech, uh, those constructions, those speech patterns. And, and those, because uh, they are, and they are, some of them are archaic. Uh, but there's, then, you know, you'd find a few people still employing those things around the country, probably. Mm. Not many. In New York, Hugh Jackman hosted uh, a screening of Living and did an interview with you. And I could tell from things that he's posted online, he was very, very moved by this film and by your performance. He even said something like, this film might change the way you live your life. Um, I'd be curious to know if making this film changed you in some way, changed your attitude on mortality or the way you're going to live your life now. Well, I would like to take the opportunity to thank Mr. Jackman for coming. It was a big, big deal for us. And, uh, and his reaction and response to the film was deeply gratifying to me personally because he's someone I admire tremendously. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I, well, I'm, I, I'm already, like all of us, really, I'm involved in that project, the project being to try and make the most of every day you're in and to make the most of the life you have rather than some life that you think you should have had or that you're yearning to have in the uh, non-existent future. 
uh, and not to compromise today with dread of tomorrow or regret for yesterday. You know, all that stuff. I mean, I, I'm now beginning to sound like a Christmas card. But, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I think, yeah, it continues to, uh, it, 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 it helps me, yeah, to continue in that, in my struggle with that, you know, with, with procrastination, basically. Mm-hmm. And with uh, and with any sense of myself as not eligible for things, I'm I'm very good at inventing myself as someone for whom lots of things are out of his range. Mm. And it, you know, and my my whole life has been a series of sort of surprises. You know, we go, oh, you apparently that's achievable. You know, oh, that's achievable. You know, it's like that because I, you know, I, I used to quip. Don't you hate people that quote their own jokes? But I, I, I used to quip that when people ask me about if I had a process or a method or anything like that, I used to say no. But in lieu of that, what I do is I invent a hostile parallel universe in which I'm just about to get fired. And, and that's a kind of joke, but it's actually sort of true too. So I, just, just so you know who you're talking to. Uh, but, uh, but, I'm, but I'm working on that. And this film, yeah, I mean, and not least the response to it has uh, – I've, has really encouraged me and emboldened me, and you know, and it will, and, you know, will, will uh, uh, you know, I've got the wind behind me. How long that will last, who knows? I expect and and rather demand uh, a lot of work from you in the coming years, but at the same time, I really do feel like this is going to be, maybe along with Billy Mac, um, a career defining role for you. Do you welcome that? Yeah, I mean, uh, anyone t- talking in those terms, Dave, I'm very happy to hear you say those things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you'd make a lot of films and uh, and some of them don't really surface. Uh, and then something like this catches fire. I'm nothing but grateful. Yeah, I'm very happy about that. Is there something that someone has said to you after seeing it? Maybe not a Hugh Jackman type, but just like a regular person. Um who yeah. had who had something to say that you found particularly moving or rewarding? Well, I mean, a young writer said to me two days ago in New York, said, you know, I'm not, uh, and he's not hysterical and he wasn't drunk. He said, I am, I'm not the same person since I saw your film. I mean, you know, and he wasn't hysterical or anything or trying to please me. He said it with all sincerity. You had to be there. But, uh, and and people have often said things of that kind. I'm not trying to, you know, it's just a fact. That's the kind of that's the tone of the general response to the movie. And people, you know, they come out of the movie. I, you know, as I say, my phone's been off the hook, and people's response is pretty much the same. They hit the street out of the cinema, and they want to do stuff. They're inspired. They're galvanized. They want to get things done. They want to stop procrastinating. You know, mm. it's it's it is a sad. It's a tragic thing story, basically, I suppose. But it's uh, but people leave the cinema with with hope. Uh, it, it's that thing that tragedy can sometimes do. It, 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 it becomes uplifting for mm. whatever reason. It's mysterious to me, but it happens to be true. Well, I think it's a wonderful combination of story, character, and performer. It, it's just great. I'm so excited for you. I'm so glad it's had this response. And what a pleasure it is to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dave. The movie is living. Please see it. Well, as Dave told us, uh, Bill Nye, charming and as wonderful as ever. Uh, Again, if you haven't seen the movie, I highly encourage you to check that one out. And uh, another Dave interview coming up right after this quick break. Another Brit. We're just going to keep the ball rolling with uh, the British actors. Emma Thompson. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Awardist. She is quite possibly one of my favorite actresses in the world, Emma Thompson. Dave, uh, do tell folks if they have not seen it about this film and, and what makes her so great in it. The movie is Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. It's available on Hulu. It's just waiting for you to watch. It's one of the best things she's ever done. It's a very intimate kind of two-hander of a movie about a woman of a certain age who hires a younger man to basically have intimate experiences with her. And it opens up all these different issues that she hasn't really thought about and leads to a sexual awakening that's very different from the one I think she expected to have when she set out on this adventure. And it's a really kind of bravura and strong and emotional performance by Emma Thompson and the kind of movie that she wants to make going forward um, about women's issues that have not necessarily been presented on screen before. And in a weaker year, she would have been a Best Actress nominee for this movie. But I just think, you know, people like Kate Blanchett, Michelle Yeoh, Michelle Williams, Daniel Deadweiler, it's just, there's just too much competition. But it's a great movie. She got a Golden Globe nomination for it, deservedly so. And she's terrific. And I really, really enjoyed talking to her about this performance in this film. All right. Well, let's get to it, shall we? Here's Dave with Emma. I'm so happy to be here with one of my favorite people, Emma Thompson, the star of Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Hello, Emma. Great to see you as always. Hi, Dave. It's lovely to see you too, always. You know, I love to bring out the Oscar nerd trivia. You are the only person ever to win Academy Awards for acting and writing. I'd be curious to know at this point in your career, what are you looking for? What what gets you out of bed professionally and how did this film kind of tie into that? Um, you know what? I like my job. I love my job even more as the years go by. I love it more and more. So um, I don't quite know why. Maybe it's because, like Matilda says, it's an escape from yourself. And as you get older, you need to do that a little bit more because you've been living with yourself for, in my case, 63 years. It's nice to have a holiday from the same old opinions and the same old chat and the same old this and that uh so perhaps that's the reason um but when i get a script through like good luck to you leo grand i get so excited to get going on it to tell that story and to turn into that person it's just it's just a sort of visceral reaction really it's not it's not a considered thing it's a response to an idea and to the material is is it's so immediate and it's very interesting because some things come through and I think I know I ought to be interested in that because it's it is in fact very interesting but I'm not I'm not responding to it so it's quite unexpected sometimes you know mm. yeah this one's written by Katie Brand who's an actress comedian writer she was Miss Turvey in Nanny McPhee Returns people might recognize her face and also from her own show in, in the UK. Uh, it's so interesting because it tackles sexuality head on. And of course, you've, you know, dealt with the topic before, but in more kind of like a repressed way or understated way with like a Merchant Ivory film or even a Jane Austen adaptation. What intrigued you the most about how Katie's work dealt with sexuality, particularly female sexuality? I think it's, I think it's one of the only movies I've ever encountered or only scripts I've ever encountered that really um, talks about pleasure and shame in in the way in this way i think we're quite disrespectful in a sense about sex and about pleasure if you consider the other human pleasures like eating we're almost 
obsessed, aren't we, with food and we'll talk endlessly about the pleasure of food and wine and all of these things. But we don't talk much about sex because we're quite puritanical about it and a little bit ashamed because our society, the societies that you and I live in and the, perhaps most of the people watching this movie are in, are based on a, a, a sort of it's partly religious and it's, it's partly just social assumption that sex is is a little bit not quite the thing. It's, a, it's something that you should be a little bit ashamed about being too interested in. You know, it's a, something that you we did we shouldn't. It's a bit naughty, basically. Um, and of course, it's essential that we have these discussions because not many people know what it is they want. When I say people, women, because they're not asked what they want. Um, it's, it isn't at the top of anybody's agenda, uh, female sexual pleasure or female pleasure of any kind. So you can talk to a lot of women who will say, I've absolutely no idea, not only what I want sexually, but what I want in life, because it's been so clear to me what I ought to want and what I ought to do, because those runnels, it's so clear. Here is the shape of your journey as a female of the species. And Nancy, the character I play, has ticked all those boxes. She's done it all right. She's done her exam. She's been a good student. She's been a good girl. She hasn't been promiscuous. She's married young. She's had two children. She's brought them up. She's never been unfaithful to her husband or had any adventure of any kind whatsoever. He's died two years ago and she's thought, I'm only half alive here. Something's wrong. I've got to do something about the fact that, for instance, I've never experienced an orgasm. And there's a surprising number, 17%, in fact, of women who have not had that experience. Um, sometimes it's to do with physical, actual physical um, facts about the body because it's, it's more difficult for some women to achieve orgasm. But um, I loved the fact that she was brave enough to say this is something that, or identify something that she wanted and go about trying to trying to find it, trying to achieve it, but at the same time being so frightened, terrified by her own decisions. It's like watching somebody decide to jump off a bridge with a bungee rope, you know. So, so whilst underneath the movie there's all of these really serious, fantastic discussions to be had and, and, and questions raised and, and options and solutions presented, it's also terribly funny. Playing her fear was one of my favourite things that I've ever had to act. This woman who's made this decision comes face to face with this gorgeous young man and can only experience utter terror. And it, we're, oh, it just was, it was delicious to play it was so delicious that was my next question because she's this bundle of nervous energy hyperverbal at the beginning and i was going to ask you was that super fun to do i can only imagine so so yeah. much fun um for daryl of course you know coming into that room and not knowing what he's going to find and then seeing that this woman really needs his help actually she doesn't know what she's doing she's got no idea what she's got herself into and the fact that he gently says, you really don't have to do any of this, you know. He's so kind to her. Um, I think that, again, not only have I not ever seen this story, I've not ever seen a woman 
do this. Uh, uh, she's always, Nancy's the sort of person who's always in the background, you know, making coffee and not doing anything interesting. And suddenly she's centre of attention and it's her story. And lo and behold, it's absolutely fascinating. And, then, <laughs> and I've never seen anyone on screen like Leo, that wonderful young man who's interested who's compassionate, but who's also very sexy and very virile, who's curious. That's that's a crucial element in his personality and it's such a beautiful character to see. You shot this with your fellow actor, Daryl McCormick, and your wonderful director, Sophie Hyde. You filmed it chronologically. I'd be curious to know if that was a bonus or a necessity. Well, two two aspects to that. One was it was essential because we only had 19 days and we had to get through terrific amount of material. You know, we would be shooting 12 pages of dialogue a day, which is, if anyone knows, it's, it's, that's a killer. Um, but also I think it was essential from the point of view of playing. Um, I think it would have been very difficult to shoot it out of order because we just didn't know where they would end up being. Because it's so in the moment, I think one of the wonderful things about the movie is that you really do see things happening in that moment. So you feel like you're in the room with these people. It's very intimate. As an audience member as well, you feel as though you're intimately implicated with these people. That's why Sophie Hyde was such a great director for it because she wanted us, yes, at first you're looking at them and you're laughing at the situation because it's very funny and it's and it's very joyful in a, in a very amusing way. But also in the end, you find your, yourself feeling things with them. Um, and that, I think we couldn't have achieved that kind of emotional weather if we had had to shoot it out of order. Mm. You know, oftentimes television and movie sets are cold, like, I mean, the temperature. <laughs> mm. But in this one, here you are wearing a negligee or less yes. for large parts of the film. Was it important to keep the, the room warm just for comfort level for you and Daryl? Oh, why didn't you? Got, no one's ever asked that. I'm trying to think because it was very cold at that time in Norwich. It was February time and freezing. Um yeah, they did. They kept it quite warm when we were actually. Um, I don't. I don't remember being cold. So they must have had to keep it warm because we weren't. Yeah, it, it was also a t tiny studio, so it was a little place, and that that was helpful actually. If we'd been shooting in a great big barn in Shepperton or Pinewood, I think that would have been harder. Um, but yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, they had to keep it warm. I can't imagine just by the nature of this film, that it was a very large crew. But were there days where the intimacy of the material necessitated a, a skeleton crew or just a bare minimum of people around? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When they're naked, when they're actually naked, we had, you know, it's a closed set. So, we, so on the set stage you had, and it's a tiny little space, you know, so you couldn't fit many people in. Um, you fit the camera in and the cameraman, um, focus puller, sound recordist, and um, yeah, no, that's it actually. That's it. So there's four four people on set, um, and then us two. But Soph had a great idea, which was uh, we decided that on the the last couple of days where we did have to be naked, um, which was bliss, by the way. 
because there were no words. We didn't have to say anything. So we it was like Christmas. Um, so we turned up on set and we disrobed and just wandered around the set naked um, just for a bit so that we could make it our own space. And then the crew came. And actually, that was a very good way of doing it because normally when you do um, intimate scenes, the crew are there and you come on in your robe and you have to take your robe off sort of. And, and that feels a little bit exposing. I mean, obviously, it's literally exposing, but it can feel emotionally a little bit tricky. Um, but this way, it was the crew who had to adapt to our space. And our space was this very vulnerable, naked, open space. And that meant that there was a huge amount of delicacy and respect in the atmosphere. Mm. I love that. You know, in talking to Sophie, your director, she mentioned that the option was always there for you to remove anything, any part of the film at any point that you weren't comfortable with, including the final shot of the film. Um, mm. Did you ever consider taking her up on that or were you with it the whole way? It's a, it's a, it's a fabulous moment. Um, yeah, I don't think that, I don't think it would, it only would be the same movie without that moment. It just wouldn't. Um, because it is a very dramatic moment, actually. And it's a sort of, um, I don't quite know what the word is, but it's, that there is something to which, it's, it's sort of the point to which everything is leading. This moment of self-acceptance, this moment of, this is my place now, my body, I can be in it now, and I can feel it, I can feel happy. And I know that there is possibility and hope. So it is, in a sense, her happy ending, you know. Um, mm. And which is hilarious, of course, because there's that phrase, isn't there, in, in massage parlours, you know. Will it be a happy ending for you today, sir? Or are you happy with <laughs> you are? Um, it's just hilarious. Anyway, um, but I think that one of the things that we managed to avoid was any kind of sense of snickering or kind of, the, the sort of childishness with which we often treat our sexuality and our sexual desires, uh, because so took it very seriously, and we all we all addressed it with the utmost seriousness, and um, it was a glorious thing to be part of that. Mm. From your point of view, with the performance, you know, there's I find an interesting contrast between the scenes where you're where Nancy is with Leo in the room. And then scenes where she excuses herself and she's by herself in the bathroom, say. What did you want to achieve? Obviously, the writing helped with a lot of this. But what did you want to achieve with the contrast of when we see Nancy with him and when we see her by herself? Well, by herself, of course, she's beset with, with self-doubt. She just, in fact, I think, is deciding when she's sitting on her own on the loo trying to decide to put on this posh negligee that she's just bought for the purpose. I think that uh, she's just about to go out and say, I, I can't go through with this. I just can't go through with it. And you see her really, she's, she puts it on. You see her starting to put it on. Um, but she's putting it on not really, not really with any kind of conviction whatsoever. It's not like she's gone into that bathroom thinking, okay, let's take it away at all. You know, she's just so unsure. And I love that, that when she comes out and she goes, da-da, 
thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? How am I doing? And then she says, I can't, I can't, please, I just can't. And that's the moment where, uh, that's the first moment when the tables just suddenly turn and Leo says, what's going on with you? And she says things to him that she has never said to anyone. She's never, ever spoken of that boy on the Greek island, of her early sexual experiences, of her disappointment in the sex life that she had with her husband. She's never told that to anybody. That's real intimacy, the intimacy that you can achieve yeah. with strangers. That's right. I don't know if you're someone who watches playback after you've shot something or watches a rushes or dailies or or rough cuts, but I'd be curious to know what your reaction was when you saw this finished film for the first time. I don't watch rushes or, or playback at all. I, I find that very confusing because you're doing something from the inside out and then you see it from the outside. It, it's very, I can't cope with it at all, so I don't do that. Um, I know some people do and it works for them, but not me. Um, the first time we saw the movie, we... Um, we had to, we did, we watched the movie on our own, me and Daryl, just on our own, because we knew we had to process it before we were able to watch it with an audience, because it was a lot. Um, and we sat kind of clutching each other watching it. And at the end, we had to, uh, uh, we had to go out and go for a walk. We couldn't really speak for a, for a bit. And then we went out and really talked about it. And we did that a couple of times, and that prepared us for the first time we saw it with, in public, which was at the Berlin Film Festival, in a massive cinema. Massive. So this huge screen, and we're sitting there, and actually it was a wonderful evening because they laughed so much. They laughed, and then they really were quiet. So it was, it was, it really comforted us. And also in Germany, nobody cares about nudity. They're always constantly getting in and out of saunas with. So there's no question about them not having ever seen the body, another body that's different to theirs, you know. So actually it was a very good place to see it in public for the first time. But you're right, you know, it's not um it's not your run of the mill uh experience. Right, it's true. And I was thinking about it because even the premiere at Sundance, it was Sundance, right? Yeah. And that and that was a and that was a virtual thing, right? And now most people, I would imagine, are experiencing this movie because it's on Hulu yes. and they can see it, you know, in their home. Yeah. And I I kind of like that because I it it, ha, it has an immediacy, it has an intimacy that I think lends itself to that kind of viewing. Are you okay with that? That it's not being consumed largely in theaters? Oh yes, I think it's wonderful that. Um, I know, I know that, that filmmakers, and so, you know, if you've made a movie, you want it to be a movie, and that's what it is. It's designed for the big screen. It's very tough to know that, that so many people will see it on the small screen. I myself think it's a wonderfully democratic thing, and that, you know, cinema is expensive, and sometimes people are not able-bodied, you know, they can't get out. And to be able to see something this delicate and beautiful at home is 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 a fantastic thing and i also think that for some people it might be quite a difficult thing to watch with lots of other people because it brings up an awful lot of feelings and to be able to watch it even on your own at home might be rather 
rather wonderful. I remember one woman coming up to me after a screening and saying, um, I was watching it with my husband um, and I couldn't laugh at certain moments because then he would know. So people feel an awful lot of connection. Sometimes they feel they can show that connection and sometimes, you know, it might be a bit difficult. Wow. <laughs> Let me finish with one last thing. The uh, British Independent Film Awards nominated you and Daryl together as best joint lead performance. I mean, you've won a lot of awards and been nominated for a lot, but what did that mean to you? Oh, I thought it was such a wonderful idea that you can get nominated for joint performances. I thought that was fantastic. I was thrilled with that. I was here, so I couldn't be there, but Daryl and Soph and Brian said they've gone. And it was, you know, the Biffers are great because it's all independent filmmakers. There's a lot of love and a lot of mutual support because it's very hard to make independent films. It's very hard to get the money. It's very hard to, so, you know, it's wonderful to be in a room with who's every, you know, you know what everyone's been through. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so well deserved. I congratulate you on this performance and I'm, I'm glad people are responding to it because it's beautiful. Well done. Uh, the movie is good luck to you, Leo Grant. As I said, it is on Hulu. Please check it out. Emma Thompson, thank you. Thanks, darling. Thanks. Well, Dave, you did it. Two back-to-back fantastic interviews. Thank you, as always, for those. Emma, is uh, she's such a gosh darn delight, and um, we should have her on every episode, I say. All right, well, Dave and Patrick, thanks so much for being with me. Sure thing. Anytime. All right. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. That is it for this episode of The Awardist. But we will have full coverage of the Oscar nominations on EW.com. Dave will be on the Today Show breaking them down. And you can also check us out on Twitter space. So be sure to join us there. If you like what you're hearing here on The Awardist, you can follow, rate the podcast and leave us an award winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. We'll see you all right back here next week. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Jared Hall, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.